0: This is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre, and we're once again recording at Nutmeg with our engineer Frank Verderosa. Our guest this week is a singer, guitarist, recording artist, manager, Grammy-winning record producer, and eyewitness to some of the most important and defining musical events of the last half century. As one half of the British pop duo Peter and Gordon, he scored nine top 20 hits, including I Go to Pieces, Lady Godiva, and the million-selling number one single, World Without Love, penned by his longtime friend, Paul McCartney. After splitting up with partner Gordon Waller in 1968, he went on to scout and develop new talent for the Beatles' Apple Records label, discovering and signing a 20-something songwriter named James Taylor. He produced over a dozen Grammy-winning recordings and worked with artists such as Linda Ronstadt, Neil Diamond, Diana Ross, Elton John, Randy Newman, Ringo Starr, Billy Joel, Bonnie Rayet, and even Steve Martin and Robin Williams. And is responsible for such hits as Fire and Rain, You've Got a Friend, Shower the People, You're No Good, when Will I Be Loved? And it's so easy to just name a few. You want more? He's also a former child actor, a member of Menza, and the first person to ever hear, I Wanna Hold Your Hand, when a young Paul McCartney and John Lennon played it for him in the basement of his mother's house wow please welcome a man of multiple talents and our first guest to be appointed a commander of the british empire the legendary peter asher
1: wow what an intro i should take you with me everywhere thank you very much that's amazing <laughs> it's like a whole opening act <laughs> <That's it. laughs> now, thank you
0: now before anything else Yes, sir. Your grandfather was Lawrence of Arabia's lawyer.
1: Yes, he was. Yeah, <laughs> wow. He was. He was. He was also an amateur playwright and a musician, but he was a, a solicitor, and w- and one of his clients was uh, Lawrence of Arabia. Which is true.
0: Fantastic. And did he go to his office on a camel?
1: No, I yeah. don't think so. <laughs> yes, no, but he did. Show- my mother met him. Um, when she was little.
2: Wow. Your mother met T.E. Lawrence. My mother
1: met T.E. Lawrence. She was, she was around uh, 17 or so. And she did tell her father how incredibly handsome she thought he was. And there was a way. And I, she couldn't remember exactly how he told her. But he made it clear that she was... That was not what he was interested in. That an attractive young eighteen-year-old woman was not what Lawrence was looking for oh. in life. And, <laughs> and, and I've always wondered exactly how you explained it back then, because you didn't go, "Oh, he's gay. That's for sure." Oh. But, but, what, but, they, but she she was apparently tactfully informed by her father that not to get her
2: hopes up. In, wow. In wow. <laughs>
1: I
0: just keep seeing Peter O'Toole. Well, of course, in my head. of course, because we don't, <laughs> so
2: we we don't really <laughs> yeah, know the re- real T.E. Lawrence looks like. We could look it up, but most no, he, people was, handsome. he, was, he was handsome. He was extremely handsome. He was handsome.
1: There's photos. He was very handsome and in captain's uniform and everything. But
2: right. And
0: and the other
2: thing is, if
0: uh, anyone listening out there looks up the name Peter Asher early photos and looks on YouTube for one of his earlier performances. Ah, uh, you are or were Austin Powers.
1: Well, <laughs> no, uh, not really. <laughs> but 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 what it, what what is apparently the case, and and what Mike Myers has has confirmed is that there were some photos of me back in that era that 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 definitely informed the look of Austin Powers to a considerable degree. Because I I did have the bad teeth and the square black glasses that I was copying Buddy Holly and uh, and so on. Uh, there's a thing that. Um, TMZ did where they actually lined up some photos of me and Austin Powers to make the point which do look remarkably as as they put it the poor guy really did look like Austin Powers but <laughs> the, the um uh, but the, I, the character was not based on me. I think it was based on a DJ called Simon, some Simon Day, I think, and yeah. and a few other people. So you know, not that I wasn't shagadelic, I'm sure, but uh, <laughs> you were shagadelic. But, but, uh, but I, I was not the uh, the role model. But I was apparently to some degree the the visual inspiration for the look. You ever talked to Mike Myers about it? I did once. Yeah. I mentioned it to him, and he yeah. kind of nodded. Yeah,
2: but that's fun.
1: Yeah,
0: because no. when I look at yeah. those
1: photos, it's scary. No, it is. <laughs> it, he definitely. There was one particular picture you know where you can really see that they he kind of went well maybe he should have that look you know uh, Yes. so yeah before we get into anyway, P- peter and
2: gordon i want to talk you brought your mom up and i wanted t- i want to mention to gilbert just before we turn the mics on that your mom you not only come from a musical family but your mom was a t- was a teacher she was in the london philharmonic she,
1: she was a professional musician she played in various orchestras in the Hallé orchestra for a while and uh with first thomas beecham and i'm not sure which other ones and then she was Ober professor at the royal academy of music in london yes and also taught privately taught, taught at the Academy and gave some private
2: lessons and did she did she teach George Martin do I have that's, that right
1: that's one of the strange coincidences yeah wow. but by, by the time I met <laughs> George Martin in in a completely other context he had actually he went to the Guildhall School of Music where she was a guest professor and he was one of her pupils yes he was an oboe player
0: and here's that. a question I always ask people who knew George Martin uh, do you think the Beatles could have made it as big as they did without George Martin I
1: don't know about as big, but the Beatles would have made it. Whatever they were that good. I mean, there is a certain there is a level of talent that is undeniable and unstoppable in my view. That whatever happens, it would have found its made its mark on the world. Did George help the Beatles' records be? Even better than they would have been otherwise. Absolutely yes. Do they? Owe, do, do, does does the genius of their records owe George a huge debt of gratitude? Absolutely yes. Is he one of the best record producers in the world? Yes. Would the Beatles have happened without him? Probably yes, but it might have been different. You know, it's it's hard to say. You know, yeah. but, but in the same way, people have asked me the, the, that question about James Taylor. You know, would well, well, would he have made it? If, and the answer is yes, absolutely. You know, so it's 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 not. Well, Eagle you certainly helped. Mind. But I helped. Exactly. <laughs> I, was, helped. I was proud to help. But I yeah. mean, I was just amazed when I heard him and went, you know, this is, you're colossally good. You know, this is insane. Um, you know, it's, you, you actually get to the point where you can't believe nobody else has gone. This guy's brilliant and signed him up and made a record. I just happened to be there first. And George was the first person to, to hear how good the Beatles were and, and, and recognize
2: it. I love that George also worked with comedians that he that he worked with the Goons. Absolutely with that. Well, other that's, background.
1: that's one of the things that recommended him to them and to me. I mean, when we, with the reason we all knew George Martin was cool wasn't the music records he'd made thus far. No. It was the fact that he produced Spike Milligan and Peter Sellers, which who were our heroes. Sure. I saw an interview goons.
2: with you and you said it all comes back to Spike Milligan. It does. Which, <laughs> which, <everything. laughs> which I love.
1: British humor entirely goes back to Spike Milligan. Okay. And he's not that well known here but he's of course a hero to all of us to to Monty Python and to every all of the course. comedians. Who Came after and, and the Beatles too. Tell us, and how, the Beatles. tell us how you made the connection with Paul McCartney. Oh well, that that that's I can't take the credit for that. But what happened was my sister, you know, was and is a, a, a successful actress in in England. And um Jane Asher, Jane Asher, and she was she was kind of a celebrity and and still is. And 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 it was in that context i think that she was invited to go and see this band it was the radio times who invited it which is a, a um kind of like our tv guide except we didn't really need a tv guide because we only had one television station which was <laughs> which was the, the bbc <laughs> which was only on a night and but anyway so this was for radio programs and they were doing an article on the beatles and they asked her to go and see them and kind of do a review so she went to see them uh uh in london and met them after the show. You know, she thought the band was incredibly good. She met them afterwards, thought they were funny and and cute and charming and everything, and she liked them. They liked her. One of them liked her in particular and asked her out and so on. So, she ended up going out with Paul McCartney for, for for a few years, and and it was in that context that that I met him. And because uh, shortly after that, it, you know, one of the functions of that relationship was that he was hanging around our house all the time and eventually our parents kind of took pity on on him and offered him the guest room at the top of the house when they weren't out on the road and so he moved in and he and I shared the top floor of the house and then you know we ended up becoming friends
0: and and one time he invited you to listen to a song he wrote
1: Yes. there was a, In the basement of the house, there was a small music room where my mother would give private oboe lessons occasionally, but not very often. So she had said to Paul, if you ever need to use a piano, because he plays piano very well, he's one of those people who can play everything very well. And, and um, she said, if you need a piano, use the one in the basement music room. So it, John came over one day, quite soon after he'd moved in. This was early on. And they were down there for a couple of hours, interestingly, with no guitars. The guitars were up in his bedroom and my bedroom on the top floor. And they were down there for a couple of hours. There was a small upright piano and a little sofa and a music stand. It was a tiny room. And and then Paul called up the stairs and asked if I wanted to come down and hear the song that they had written. So I came down and sat on the little sofa, and they sat side by side on the piano bench and played uh, I Want to Hold Your Hand for the first time. That fresh, freshly minted. Wow and asked, me, and asked me what I thought. So
0: you were like the first person in the
2: world to hear I want to hold your hand. He was. Other than the composers yes. Yeah, sure. <laughs> did, did you have an ability at that at that tender age to recognize a hit song? Oh, think yeah, about. I
1: think we all would have. I mean, it, you, you kind of go, am I losing my mind or is this one of the best songs I've ever heard in my life? And, of course, what you really do, which is what I did, is often to play it again. And they did. Because that's what makes, you know. we all know, it's like when you used to buy 45s in the minute, the needle got to the big old fat grooves in the middle, sure. and you'd yank it back to the beginning. Oh. Because that's the great thing about a hit record, you just want to hear it again and again.
2: I miss those days. Yeah. Didn't he also write yesterday in the house and you weren't you were home at the time?
1: That's right. Yeah. He did. I think my mom was the first person to hear that. But Wow. Could, you probably know the story, but he woke up with the melody completely yes. formed in his head, yes. and was convinced it was an existing song. He wasn't going around saying, "Listen to this song I've written." He's, he was going around saying, "What is this?" You know, um, he sang it to my mom and to various people, saying, "You know, this must be something. It's this melody stuck in my head." And eventually, by process of elimination, he realized he'd written it inadvertently. And
0: did, did he?
1: originally call it Scrambled Eggs? It originally had no lyrics and then they were looking at some point as I say I wasn't there so I didn't witness this but at some point during that day the temporary lyrics that he was looking for a da-da-da you know, and the first da 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 that apparently came to mind was scrambled eggs. So at one point, it was something about scrambled eggs,
2: how I love your legs, or something. Yeah, but <laughs> it's fascinating. His but his initial reaction was someone must have written this. This must. have yes, this must. It, a, it's exist. the only
1: tune apparently where it, wow. uh, the, where he woke up with it completely done uh, as a melody. I love and, that. And but I mean, nobody knows really where songs come from. That people tend to get a bit mystical about it. But. Um, that that was an extreme case to wake up with one of the best songs ever written. Of course. Pre written. Without having to make any effort. <laughs> you know?
0: Of course. We should all be so lucky. Oh what an ability. And and you're a member of Mensa?
1: Uh, it's true. Well, I took the test. And,
2: <laughs> we I don't go in any order here, I, Peter, I, as I, you can see. I, I,
1: I took the test a very long time ago, so at least they don't make you retake it.
2: You know, there's oh, no there's uh-oh. no readmission qualification. I, I'm sure in 150 I, guests, we've never had a Mensa member in here I before. Wonder.
1: I probably did it when, you know, I probably took it when I was about 16. So, you know, and I, but I've worked on my brain cells pretty vigorously since then. So, so who knows what's left? <laughs> you know? Luckily, they don't make you recheck your IQ.
2: Gil, you're not in Mensa?
0: Uh, no, no,
3: it's so
1: political.
3: <laughs> but also, I do like
1: those kind of logic things. I mean, I read right. f- I was did, read philosophy at university and that kind. Of, so I do like,
2: I like maths and. <clears throat> Logic and stuff. Before we get into British Invasion... And, they and,
0: wouldn't let me near the building. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure you were banned. Before we get into Peter and
2: But Gordon. I've been to a
1: couple of meetings, and they're pretty weird. Really? I, I've been to, like, two in my whole life. Now, are the just people... Just out of curiosity.
0: Are a lot of the people in Mensa a little bit on the crazy side? Yes. Like the, yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's so, interesting. So, in what <laughs> way? What... Are, are they
1: just, <clears throat> like, out there? Like, they can't... No, just... It's a, just a bunch of people. But, you know... I. I'm not sure what you, what, I don't really know what it's for or what you'd expect. You know, they're all going to get together and solve the world's problems in mm. 10 minutes over dinner. But, but no, it's, it, it's a, you know, IQ, as we all know, measures a particular kind of thinking about it. Sure. may or may not be any use.
2: Don't go away. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor.
3: Now back to Gilbert and Frank. It's them that you soon will
2: thank. Gilbert found this interesting, too. We want to get into the British invasion, too. There's so much to cover with someone like you, Peter. But also, you were a child actor. I was. You worked with one of Gilbert's favorites, Alistair Sim.
1: I did. We were in a film called Escapade together. Fascinating. Um, Yeah, it was was a good film, actually. I saw it not long ago. They, They had a revival of it in L.A., They were talking about some particular period of British filmmaking. I can't remember what they called it. And some film research body was doing the screening and they figured out I was not dead. And I was the only person in the film left you know, so they right. said will you come and talk about making the movie i said yeah of
2: course and, and you worked with claudette colbert i did claudette
1: colbert played my mother um wow. I got a great picture of me kissing claudette colbert very vigorously
2: How about that Gil? <laughs> <laughs> it happened one night
0: and you worked with this actor jack hawkins
1: yes sure he was my he was my father in the same film that claudette colbert played my mother we were in the outposts of malaya fighting the commies on behalf of the <laughs> british empire in the this. film, we won. In real life, not so much. I was just saying, like years ago, I was watching
0: a talk show, and Jack Hawkins had just had his vocal cords yes. removed.
1: Yes, he did quite a few films after that. I mean, even with some lines that he would do with the you know buzzy thing, which it, they're getting better anyway. But and,
0: and I, I, it seemed like he he was talking about it, and the way some people burp the alphabet. Yes. He would burp the words. Yes, yes, that's what.
1: Yeah, there's two ways they do it. Either they swallow the air and kind of talk of uh, the, the burp, or they use those buzzy things like electric razors. And they, and uh, but he would he got really good at it and could actually, you know, he was actually in a couple of films where he had short lines and he would get away with it.
2: I'm just curious about. He how was how a you, terrific
1: actor and a very terrific nice man. actor, Jack yeah. Hawkins. Yeah. And then I did a film with Cecil Parker. I don't know if you remember. A
2: lot of, one of my favorite act, British mm, actors. I don't know that name.
1: Oh, look him up.
2: You'll okay, know him. Okay, Cecil every, Parker. He's in everything. I know Cecil Kellaway.
1: <laughs> uh, no. Look up, <laughs> <look> up, <laughs> so, up Park. Okay. He, in everything. Okay. Um, he How was, did you and terrific.
2: Jane get into acting in the first place? I mean, your dad was a physician. Your I mom know. was a musician.
1: It's odd. I, I The stories I'm told, I can't really remember, but um, apparently some agent or somebody spotted the three of us. My, I've got two sisters, Jane, right. Jane and right. Claire. We all have red hair. So it was like, and we were all graded by height and looked evidently, you know, cute or whatever. And so somebody said, oh, you know, you, make Some money out of those kids, you know, or, or get them working, and and anyway, so and some agent expressed interest, and we went, Yeah, sure, you know. And and um, we never did a, do anything, all three of us together. Jane and I did do one thing together because I did a number of the old Robin Hood series, if oh, you remember that's right. that, with Richard Green, um, and uh, the black and white, which is a very interesting story, by the way. That's another thing we could talk about for hours, but it was it was all created by Blacklist. Americans who'd gone to England to find work. Hannah Weinstein um, put the thing together. And it was the first, first, episodic TV ever made in in Britain. She would do a show a week. Blacklisted writers, it blacklisted writers who had to go overseas. Largely blacklisted writers that weren't fascinating. Anyway. Um, I was Prince Arthur in a number of those episodes. But then later, after Prince Arthur had disappeared for a while, I came back as a peasant child with Jane as my sister. We were two peasant children trying to free their oppressed father from the clutches of the sheriff of Nottingham. Uh, That's the only thing we ever did together. But you can can find it. It exists.
2: I didn't know it was... I know the series, but I didn't know there were blacklisted American writers behind it.
1: Hannah Weinstein's the producer, and I don't think she's related to the Weinsteins as we know them, but she was a blacklisted... um, Producer, a uh, left-wing Jewish producer from LA who'd gone to London to work. How about that, kill Wow! Along with a lot of cool writers who went there too. So
0: you know. all of them, the whole crew was basically blacklisted.
1: No, the, the crew
3: probably no, was, not. The crew, mean, I'm sure the union crew the to be created. But, but I think the
0: creators,
1: I the writers, it. certainly Hannah Weinstein who's the, was the key figure, and they used. Some blacklisted writers as well to write episodes. I got to dig into that. Yeah.
2: So how did music? You, you, you're always musical. It was a musical family, but you obviously decided at some point not acting.
1: Um, well, gonna... it, yes, I'd like to think I made that decision, but it could be that the acting community made that decision. <laughs> 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 well, we'll give you credit for it. <laughs> um, no, I mean, by the time I got to school, see, Jane uh, quit school when she was about fifteen. She 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 knew acting was for her, and she didn't need school, and she, you know. Um, so, but I went to Westminster, which is a serious what you know what in England we call a public school, which isn't really public at all, expensive and hard to get into and it was a very serious school it was in the middle, founded by Queen cool Elizabeth I and all that stuff and so they would never give you time off to go and be in a film or anything so it, so between that and the fact that I probably wasn't getting as much work as I was, I just started taking school seriously, and I could combine school and music, but not school and acting and and at the risk of
0: getting the raft. Of Beatles fans the world over, you introduced John Lennon to Yoko Ono.
1: I I, w- I was responsible for that meeting. I yes, uh, I started an, a bookshop and an art gallery with some friends, um, two friends of mine, Barry Miles and John Dunbar. And Miles ran the bookshop, John ran the art ran the art gallery, and I was the third partner and also put some of the the, the money. I thought I was making. In pop music, then no, no, it wasn't really. But that's it, that's the story. <laughs> um, into the bookshop and the art gallery called Indica, named, of course, after the plant cannabis indica. Maybe some botanists I don't oh. know uh-huh. all
2: and <laughs> that tells us a lot. <laughs>
1: and, yes, exactly. And so, we, yeah, we were trying to be like the City Lights bookshop or something. It was, you know, and it, it was effective. We, you know, William Burroughs came over and did a reading. Ginsburg did a reading yeah. there. It became the, saw that in the, the research. The spot. Um, and then we opened this art gallery and. And John had heard about this Japanese-American artist who we thought sounded wacky enough to be in a cool avant-garde gallery. So John got hold of her and asked if she'd come and do an exhibition. She said yes. We took an ad in the paper and she came over and the, everything. And the, the way these things work, you'd have an opening night for the press and everything with wine and cheese or whatever. And, but we sometimes had a, a pre-press opening that we would invite friends to and uh, that by this point the Beatles were amongst my friends so we invited everybody and and one of them came and that was John so that that's where he and Yoko met
0: and and a lot of people have this very easy answer that it was Yoko who split
1: up the Beatles What's... no I don't think so I mean you know they were arguing about a lot of different things and you know I think, yes, some of them got annoyed about Yoko, but in in the end, it was Alan Klein that they were arguing about, you know, when they'd they'd agreed that they wanted some serious businessman to come in and and rethink the whole thing, because by then, it had expanded into numerous areas beyond music. Apple Records was one thing, but it was films and electronics and clothes and this, that, and it was going a bit nuts. They just couldn't agree on who that person should be, and John was determined that it should be Alan Klein. And... uh, uh, I think he was mistaken. I knew about Alan from New York, and I knew him essentially to be kind of a crook, you know, and... and um, Turned out
2: to be true. Turned
1: out to be true. <laughs> and, and, and so Paul was vehemently against Alan. John, Alan Klein somehow talked John into it the way these people do. Maybe he told John he was going to make Apple great again or something. I don't know, whatever it took. But whatever, however these crooks talk us into <laughs> electing them. But um, it... Um, it it didn't work, you know. And anyway, that was what I think. If, if if one thing brought Paul and John to a to a to a point of de- departure from each other, that
2: was it. And you were at a at Apple then, so you were. in the, I was you you were Apple, in the middle of some of those the minute, arguments. The minute
1: they chose Klein, um, I resigned. Right. So I by by the time John arrived, I would left.
2: And took James Taylor with you. By
1: the time out. By the time Alan arrived, sorry, I and, I had left.
0: And the relationship between Yoko and
1: John, what did that? how did that your opinion i wasn't there that much of the time i mean it was very close he he looked he valued her opinion on everything and she's a very smart woman she's an eccentric woman but a brilliant woman and and uh i think the beatles would just it was it was new to them because the rest of them had you know wives or girlfriends that would leave and go to work and yoko was part of john's like partnership in, sure. in every in everything and i think they found that disconcerting but i mean no, she and John loved each other very dearly, no question about that. But I wasn't there enough to comment beyond that.
2: Let's talk about Peter and Gordon and sure. meeting Gordon. You met Gordon at Westminster met School? Met Gordon
1: at school, yes. We were, I mean, essentially, we were both, you know, we were the only people we ran into who also played the guitar. By this time, I'd got a guitar. I I played various instruments badly. I'd never kept up with my piano lessons or anything. I'm musically. Both my sisters are much better musically than I am. They both read music much better than I do, which is probably why I'm the only one making a living in the music business. That's <laughs> <So>, ironic. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so, so, uh, but eventually I got a guitar and I had a skiffle group like we all did. That's all. other Lonnie one. Donegan. The skiffle
2: movement, yeah, exactly. Right. Lonnie Donegan was great. We talked to Billy J. Kramer about that very thing. Yeah, he
1: was such a big deal. Yeah. And most Americans don't get it. Jack White is a huge Lonnie Donegan fan. There are a few out... Outposts of Lonnie Donegan fandom. What was in, the in song? The does, does your chewing gum? Well, the, the big, the good one was Rock Island Line. Rock, uh, that's right. And the bad one was does right. the right. That was the G- novelty <laughs> one that, that we got <laughs> in the states. favorite. Well, no, Rock Island Line was number one. What? Yeah, which is a Lead Belly song. And uh, and then does your chewing gum lose his Flavor on the bedpost overnight? Was also sadly. I guess I was a <laughs> child,
2: so that's the one that I remember.
1: Right. Um, so Gordon played the guitar and sang as well, and um, so we tried doing it together. Just really because we were there you know and uh, it sounded okay we we'd work up some songs and he was a bit more of a rock and roll he was a big Eddie Cochran fan big Elvis fan you were more the folky I was a bit more folky and we were sort of a folkyish duo but but where we where we our taste totally overlapped was the Everly Brothers like all duos throughout history right, right. whether it's Simon and Garfunkel or John and Paul or us The Everly Brothers were our
2: our inspiration. Everybody wanted to be the Everly Brothers. Everybody wanted to be the Everly Brothers. We did.
1: You were both big fans of American pop music. Yep, for sure. I mean, the again, this is a big subject because it goes beyond pop music. What you got to understand is we were big fans of America. I mean, when we grew up in, you know, people often ask me why the 60s were special in England and why it was different. And the answer is in the 50s because the 50s in Britain and America... Could not have been more different. 50s in England were black and white, bomb sites, depressing. We still had rationing until 1956, you know. And... and we'd look across the Atlantic and there was this miraculous land as so, all you know if we were black and white they were technicolor and glossy and perfect teeth and huge refrigerators full of exotic foods and <laughs> these silly cars with giant fins on them and
2: you had a poster of the New York it. skyline I did you? I had yeah. a poster of
1: the New York skyline on my wall I had copies of Downbeat with the jazz clubs I'd go to the minute I got to New York I knew I would you somehow. couldn't wait to go I didn't know how and going back and forth then was a very big deal now people go for a week's holiday in Florida like there's nothing to it cheap tickets and then it was a very big very expensive deal and on top of all that you know America we could see was taking over this whole british empire thing was you know which was people were still on about in england it was clearly not happening anymore you know there was clearly to all of us that that was yesterday and tomorrow was america and and on top of that to clinch it all these american cities that we knew about from movies and television new york and la and new orleans and they all had amazing music which we loved, you know. So we, we were obsessed with
2: American music. So it wasn't just the Everly's. You were listening to Little Richard. Oh, no. You we were, were listening listen all to Fats it. Domino. You were listening to Absolutely. anything and, you can get your hands on. Of
1: course, and we all were. And I mean, the Beatles were a cover band.
3: Of course.
2: You know,
1: that's how they began. They were doing all American songs. I used to go and see, the, you know, R&B was huge. I used to go and see the Rolling Stones every Monday night. They were playing at a place called Studio 51, which was an R&B night on Mondays. I was Ken Colley's Jazz Club the rest of the week. And, and they played. You know, they were playing all. You know, in their case, it would be like Bo Diddley and Willie Dixon and Muddy Waters, and but nobody was playing their own songs. It was all a tribute to American music,
2: right? And so, Peter and Gordon, when you guys formed, that that winds up becoming your ticket to. We America. did a, We
1: did a bunch of R and B stuff, and we did folk stuff, and we did Everly stuff. Yes, exactly. Right. And that's what got us signed. You know, we were, we were spotted and playing in a club by right. an A and R guy and signed up.
0: And and they were. You said in an interview that everybody would confuse every single one of the English groups and duos together.
2: Well, you guys were well, confused with Chad and Jeremy?
0: Duos,
1: yeah. particularly. Chad and Jeremy, yeah. which was kind of weird, really. <laughs> we knew each other, you know. And yeah. they, we actually took over one gig from them. They were playing one bar, and they were leaving to go play somewhere else as a residency and they the bar asked them if they could recommend someone else and they recommended us so we we helped each other out but it was kind of odd because the two duos in both cases the tall handsome one sang the low part the short nerdy one with glasses sang the high part (laughs) and and uh, and, uh, so I mean it was and and what would happen is they did things that we didn't do they did like the Paddy Duke show they were on Batman oh oh, sure the Dick Van Dyke show and the Dick Van Dyke show right and people would congratulate us but we but they were Never on Ed Sullivan, and we were. So, uh, na, 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 na. Oh, so um, that's great. But so what happened is, you know, we would do Ed Sullivan, They people would congratulate them, and you kind of go. You
0: know. And, and that, it's, that was the one where they had. To... They, uh, they had so many mobs of people chasing them and they had to stay with the pet tree. Yes.
2: Yes. Oh, that's it. Yes. Yeah, no. yes.
1: And they were playing another myth- mythical English duo with different names.
2: I believe so. Like Rodney and... <laughs> they Wilson. weren't even Chad and Jeremy. Yeah, they were. <laughs> which makes no sense. Exactly. At all, looking back. Well,
1: Jeremy's still a very successful actor. Yes. Um, he's in a play in London. Yeah, we are so, talking so, to so, Billy Jay about as it. As is Jane, by the way. My sister's in the uh, London version of An American in Paris. Oh, cool. Which is great. With the original guy from here, you know, the lead guy, whatever his name is.
0: His name is escaping. Amazing
1: and brilliant. And Jane plays Madame somebody or other. And after
0: those years of the New York skyline, tell us what the experience was when you finally got to New
1: York. It was brilliant. I mean, it was astounding. Uh, one of our first gigs was playing the, the World's Fair. The, the What's the sphere thing called? Oh,
2: the Unisphere. Unisphere. You played well, the there. 64 being, World's Fair?
1: We did. That's cool. Um, that was one of our very first gigs. And well, first of all, we are just arriving in New York. and the fact, we, we knew what, exactly what it was going to look like. And it did, you know. <laughs> it really looked what like lived up to expectation. And, and then, of course, to arrive and be chased around the city by teenage girls trying to take your clothes off can only improve the experience. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's the only way to travel. I recommend it highly should the opportunity ever come here. We away. wouldn't and, know. And, <laughs> and we played... Playing the Unisphere, they had a sort of a moat thing filled with water between between us and the audience. And, of course, the minute we came on, they all jumped in the water and swam across. So it was like a wet t-shirt contest.
2: Wonderful. It was all, it
0: was, <laughs> so, it was all very exciting. So you enjoyed your career
2: over the years. I did. I <laughs> enjoyed every moment. You, live, you lived every minute of the British I, Invasion exper- fantasy out. Absolutely,
1: That's yes. great. Well, I, so, I, I continued
2: to enjoy it, by the way. So how did World Without Love happen? That, that was obviously... A game changer.
1: It was. Well, what had happened was, you know, we got signed up by by this guy, Norman Newell, uh, who I think was thinking of as a kind of a folk duo. I think we were kind of like Britain's answer to the Kingston trio, the Kingston duo, as it were. Interesting. Or Peter and Paul without Mary. And, <laughs> okay. and uh, so, because that's, we, we, it was a song, we, we did a version of 500 Miles that he particularly right. liked and so on. So he said, "They, they, we auditioned, they signed us, but they said, we're doing 500 Miles, we're doing this, we're doing that. I'm going to go look for a couple of songs. But if you know any other songs, you know you'd like to put on the list let me know now cut to a few months before that i'd heard this song well without love that paul had written and i said that's a really good song and he said yeah but i'm putting it aside we're not i'm not finishing it we're not going to do it it's um john doesn't think much of it and you know i'm abandoning it for now And uh, apparently John really didn't like it. And I've read later, I didn't witness this, but I've read later that John would actually interrupt Paul when Paul would start to try and sell him the song because the first line is, please lock me away. And John would go, okay, I will, the song's over. (laughs) And and, uh, so anyway, so when Norman said, do you know any other songs? I kind of went, maybe I do. And I went back to Paul at home that, that very evening and said, is that song World Without Love still an orphan? And he said, yes, we're not doing it. I said, "Well, can we try and work up a harmony version of it because it's pretty cool," and um, he said, "Yes, happily." So by this time, it had only it had the t- two verses, but no bridge. So he wrote out the the two verses for me. On a piece of paper, which you'd better believe is safely locked in my safe. I saw so that I, you still have that. Oh yeah. So, but <laughs> the minute the music business collapses completely, I can run to Sotheby's as fast as my legs. <laughs> I would, as fast as my legs can carry me. I would. Um, but anyway, and he he made a demo on my reel-to-reel tape machine, and uh, then before the session came around, I had to nag him a little bit to write the bridge. The, so I wait, and in a while, but, Um which he did, and it went on the list and we recorded it that very first day. And by the end of the session, there was no doubt in anyone's mind that was going to be our single. We weren't folkies, we were going to be pop stars. And and it came out only a month later and went to number one in the UK, number one in all over Europe, and eventually, to our disbelief and incredulity, number one in America. In fact, it was the first British invasion, number one in America, after the Beatles. We After I Want a whole Jam, stopped being number one, we went up there, which is insanely... Great. The only snag for me was by that time I'd left Westminster. Gordon was still there because he a year younger. I was at university doing philosophy. And in England, you know, they don't let you leave and come back. We don't have these mysterious credits that you have over here. Right. We, you're supposed to just start, you know, get your degree. And so I had to go and meet with the head of the philosophy department and explain this problem. And finally I convinced him this was a completely unique opportunity and he gave me a one-year leave of absence to, oh, go and, nice. to go and get all this rock and roll nonsense out of my system and come back and get my degree. And tragically, of course, I have to admit to my shame that I'm still on that one-year's leave of absence.
2: <laughs> well, you, you had bigger fish to fry. Well, yes, exactly. <laughs> now, yes, exactly. I
0: just I... have to absorb certain things here. <laughs> You're the first human being to hear, I want to hold your hand. And you have songs being just handed over to you by Paul McCartney and John Lennon. It's true.
1: Um, it's true. It was a leftover song. But what's interesting is, when they, because people go, how did you get all those other songs? And, and we didn't do any getting at all. They, they took songwriting seriously. I mean, if you read any interviews with the Beatles back then, one of the questions we all got asked is, what are you going to do when this is all over? Because the assumption was, confident assumption, that two years was the max for a pop career. And they would always say, we will be songwriters. Because they didn't just want to be Eddie Cochran and Elvis and Buddy Holly. They wanted to be Lieber and Stolo. Oh, and Bacharach and, and David. Bacharach and David. Wow. Uh, Pomus and Schumann. Sure. They, they knew that. They looked upon it as the sort of a separate career and and songwriters i mean if you have a big hit single you make damn sure you write the follow-up you don't want somebody else cashing in on you know on your success so when we came back from our first trip to america promoting well without love the second single nobody i know was written with a bridge you know <laughs> waiting, for done, you. <laughs> waiting for you so so we didn't have to do any begging you know that's what songwriters do they 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 give you the songs you need.
2: What's the moment like? And there, there are only so, so many people on the planet that could answer this question. The moment that you find out that you have the number one record in, in, it's, the, in the country.
1: Oh, well, it's insane. And, and and number one in England was insane. Number one in America meant more to us. And it, it's the same when the Beatles got the same phone call six months earlier or whatever it was. that I Want to Hold Your Hand was number one because they knew they would get to go there. And that's what we knew. Uh-huh. Words, it meant we were going to It was to a phone call? The news came to you in a phone yes. call? Came to the yeah. phone call, and th- you know um, that was like the irrevocable proof that we were going to get to go to this land that we that we dreamed of going to, and and we did.
0: You know, it's it's funny to think because you told us about how the English had this dream world view of America, and when the English invasion was starting, America looked at. Everyone coming from there thinking, oh, this is the hip spot. I know. Isn't that weird?
1: It, and, it, you know, as I say, that's what people ask. Is why were, why were the 60s so cool? And it, is, it was a reaction. You know, it was a reaction to the bleakness of the 50s because, you know, the, they everyone tried. They crowned a new queen and said it's a new Elizabethan age and blah, blah, blah. But eventually it wasn't until the young people kind of went, we're going to screw us you know everyone in the 50s tried to dress like a grown up you know that you tried to look older than you were and suddenly everyone went i'm not going to do that i'm not going to wear a suit like my dad i'm going to wear these absurdly silly clothes and velvet and flowers and <laughs> bell buns and, and you know and and it changed everything and and then america Fell in love with I mean America was doing it too with the whole hippie thing, but sure. there was something radical that happened in England which was a distinct reaction to the bleakness of the fifties. And there was a reaction to the fifties in America too, because they were a bit conventional and oh, certainly. sturdy. But but they weren't miserable like they were in
2: England, you know. Well, you do you want to uh do you feel are you feeling brave, Peter? I, I'm, I, 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 since we, since, I think so, yeah Since we're talking about World Without Love, yes. and he's been excited about this, he yes. sang uh, Wichita Lineman with Jimmy. And Jimmy's, I, Jimmy's, So I'm told,
1: I didn't consult with Jimmy before I came You should up. have. I, I probably per, should have. Perhaps you should have. Jimmy is a good friend. and I'm a huge fan. He's the best. But... Uh, and yeah, that's one thing I failed to do. Is though, should I let him sing with me? <laughs> <laughs> well, we always ask. All right, I'm because...
0: gonna I'm gonna have to carry mm-hmm. you
1: through this. You gotta, exactly. Don't worry. Okay. We'll do. It. Okay, you follow go. the script, and I'll join you. In follow some his bit. lead. Okay. <laughs>
2: okay, the okay. Here we go.
1: Please lock me away, and don't allow the day here inside. Where I hide with my loneliness, I don't care what they say, I won't stay in a world without love. Birds
0: sing out of tune and rain cloud hide the moon. I'm okay. Here I'll stay with my loneliness. I don't care what they say, say I, I won't want stay to in a world without love <laughs> so,
1: so I wait, wait and in a while I will see my true, my true love, love smile She may come I know don't not know when, when When she does, does I know
3: So don't baby until then Lock me away
1: <laughs> and, and
3: don't allow where,
0: where I hide With,
1: with my, my loneliness, loneliness. I, I don't care what they say, say. I won't stay, won't
0: stay in a world, world without love Second <laughs> bridge, second Gilbert. So I wait and in a while <laughs> I will see my true love smile She may come, I know not when when she does i lose so oh, baby until then lock me away and don't allow the day here inside where i hide with my loneliness
1: i don't care what they say i won't stay
0: in a world without love
1: one repeat i don't care what they say i won't world without love <laughs> and an instrumental da, 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 da,
3: da. <laughs> brilliant brilliant
2: <laughs> peter and gilbert. who needs gordon brilliant peter and gilbert ladies and gentlemen <laughs> thank you very much that was wow. fun. Birds are not the only ones singing out of tune. Oh yeah! Yep. <laughs> and the interesting thing is, there's these
1: weird lyrics float around. Which, when she does, I lose. Which came from God knows where. It's on the web in places, but it's wrong. So when she does, I'll know.
2: Oh wow! I apologize I, for that. No, it's
1: quite all right. But yeah. every now and then you look up the lyrics and it says lose. But if you listen, we're definitely saying you know. And he wrote no. i strange. I have the handwritten manuscript to prove it. When she does, I'll know. So, but when she does, I'll right. lose. Right, that's kind of insulting. I, I, should, you know, yes, I should. When have she finally known. turns up, you go, "Uh oh!"
2: I'll start proofreading <laughs> the lyrics going forward. Here, here's another thing I like about Paul living in your house: is yes. your dad had arranged for a, uh, an escape route for him. Yeah, he, my <laughs> father found a way over over into a neighbor's
1: house. <laughs> On the roofs, so that um, Paul could escape. Because of course, it became known eventually that he was there. The weirdest part, of course, must have been for you know, because it, my his house was in Wimpole Street, you know, which is that whole Wimpole Street, Harley Street, medical zone. So my father saw patients there too. It was his consulting rooms as well as our house. So he would have patients come, and there would be like a crowd of girls on the doorstep. And we never explained. they completely bewildered. There's the only doctor in England with groupies, you know. <laughs>
0: A strange thing in your life that brings me, reminds me of a movie that That's, I
2: saw. What's that?
0: Oh, yep. uh, you were the best man at the wedding for Marianne Faithful. I was. I was, yes. Now, Marianne Faithful did a strange movie. Go on
1: a motorcycle? No,
0: uh, no I think one? it was I- Irena Palm. Ah. Okay. Where, where she's a grandmother. Oh, this was more recently. Uh, yes, yes. Not, not
1: young, beautiful Marianne.
0: Oh, no, no. Old, this old, is the cool Old, Marianne. Yes, okay. yes. <laughs> she's
1: great. I love Marianne. Anyway. No, I and don't remember that. I haven't she, seen it. She's a
0: grandmother who's retired and, you know, struggling for money and yeah. has a, a handicapped son. And the movie is how she just falls into a job where she... Where, guys go to a place, put their dicks through a hole in the wall, and Marianne Faithful on the other side jerks them off.
2: Where this on is, earth did you see
0: this?
1: This is a movie. <laughs>
0: it, it's actually not a bad film.
1: Well, there you go. I wasn't aware of that. That's a showstopper. I mean, that's that's it, very it, good. It, yes,
0: and it wasn't like a sex comedy or anything. How it was strange!
1: Like very serious. Stuff. I have to research that. Yes, and yeah. I, I, I have not seen. I, I, I could bring it out with Mariana, I suppose. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I wouldn't.
2: <laughs> Maybe I wouldn't. Tell us about part of the, the experiences you, you just mentioned playing the Sullivan Show, and what was that like? It was great. I mean, it was. Uh, it was
1: I'll, I'll tell you an interesting story though. Um, The reason we weren't on The Sullivan Show when we first got here was, um, indirectly, Alan Klein again.
2: Uh Uh-oh. And and I'll tell you why.
1: Not being evil, but actually being clever. He had set up a system whereby when all the new English singles came out, he would have them shipped immediately that week, the the new hot releases, straight over to New York. And occasionally he would cover them on his label, Cameo Parkway. And Bobby Rydell did a ah, cover of yes. "World Without Love. The minute it did come out in the UK, before ours came out in America, he put his out, went in the charts. And and then when ours came out, it, we luckily knocked him out of the charts. And ours went became the hit. But meanwhile, when we got here and our agent tried to get us on Ed Sullivan, they were going, fine. But then they said, we're going to sing Well Without one. No, no, you can't do that. Bobby did that song last week. so Oh, bad timing. Because he was a regular on the Sullivan show. Right. So we didn't get on Sullivan till later when we with another McCartney song called "I Don't Want to See You Again." Right, but that was that was why we weren't on was that what, what was Ed like to to? Uh, I, you didn't meet him, Mr. I mean, Sullivan. It was Mr. Sullivan, and you didn't really meet him. But what they did tell you when you finish and bow, look over at Mr. Sullivan, <clears throat> and if he puts his arm out, you walk over and shake his hand. But if he doesn't, you don't. But he did, of course. Or I wouldn't be telling the story. From England, the two London
0: youngsters who met while they were attending Westminster School developed the top-flight stars, ladies and gentlemen, Peter and Gordon. I don't want to
3: see you again. I love is grand. How can I understand? When someone says to me, I don't want to see you again, why do I cry at night, something wrong could be right, I hear you say to me, I don't want to see you again, as you turn your back on me, you hear the light of day, I didn't After love been and gone I'll still hear someone say I don't want to see you again As you turn your back on me You hit the light of day I didn't have to play When someone says to me, I don't want to see you again, I don't want to see you again, I don't want to see you again. I'll
1: tell you one person that was a bit of a surprise it was when our agent got all excited when they said that, that they'd got us on the Jackie Gleason show. And and um, we'd never heard of him because oh, we love that <laughs> we, we didn't we didn't get we got very few American we got Sergeant Bilko that was about the okay. only American TV we got we got we loved Phil Silvers we didn't get the Honeymooners so we had no idea and everyone's going oh Jackie will Jackie Gleason this is amazing you know uh, it's so cool you're on his show so we were quite excited there was this legendary guy so we went this is when he had a variety show in, down in Miami sure after the Honeymooners but yeah. they would do a Jackie bit Jackie Gleason show they did a bit of Honeymooners in the middle that's of right. it that's right so we went down there you know and walk on the set and there's this obnoxious drunken asshole of a man <laughs> 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 being being really horrible to everyone, not to us. He didn't even speak to us. But uh-huh. the crew, the cast—it was. We were kind of, this guy's a complete shit, you know. And and that, of course, was the immortal Jackie. Oh now, no, sin- the great <laughs> one. Since then, I what the honeymooners learned it all by heart. I recognized he was a complete genius, and had every right to be as assholeish as he wished. But he certainly was using that right to the
2: fullest on Amazing. this particular occasion. <laughs>
1: But then we did Red Skelton, and he, on the other hand, was not drunk and not unpleasant at all. He was very nice.
2: Did you do Milty's show, too? No, we never did. Oh, okay. Not oh, s- s- that saves the mm-hmm. question. Red Skelton. You know, the internet cannot be trusted in certain respects. Well, they maybe have we you, did, you. They have maybe you guys you. playing the Burl Show. Maybe we did. Yeah.
1: We did a few. I don't remember meeting him, but I know. I don't remember. Maybe we did. All right. Who knows? So Peter and Gordon. If it's on the internet, it must be true.
2: <laughs> I, I do this must be true I also want to ask you about one other hit I want yeah. to ask you about I Go to Pieces written by the great Dale Del Del Shannon. Shannon yes yeah uh, what was what was he like I mean it's a, he was a, great a great talent who came to a Saturday very hour. nice
1: I mean that was another one we sort of picked up off the floor in a way because we were on tour with with the Searchers another great English band and sure. Del Shannon and and he'd written this song that he thought would be right for the Searchers, and inexplicably, into and my mind, mistakenly, they turned it down. They, they said, "Thank you very much. Don't think it's right for us." They actually could have made a good record of it, but we'd overheard it and kind of went, "Oh, well, if they're not doing it, can we have yeah. it?" And uh, and he, we worked out a version and said, "Look, you know, hold that song. We'll cut it as soon as we get back to England," and we did.
2: Great track. And so you, when Peter and Gordon finally split up in 68, you, you decide to go in different directions? Well, we
1: did, the interesting thing is we didn't actually split up. You, did. um, you didn't officially we, split we up. We know. I mean, we never said this is our last gig. We never had a big row. We never had an Everly Brothers punch up on stage or anything. You know? We just drifted into a kind of hiatus. And I confess that when the hiatus went on for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, my assumption was <laughs> we're not, <laughs> not going to do some. but of course we did gordon and i got back together after 38 years thanks to paul shaffer thanks to paul shaffer but to go back to where you where you were um where, where were you again oh yes that's when i went off and well, to you, do other things. i decided paths i wanted to be a record producer i knew that right i loved the process of making records from the day we first went in the studio and uh, so i did and i, I that's a career i deliberately went after mm-hmm. and and
0: you one. were sort of like at one point not as excited about performing yeah as you are about being in the creative process
1: yes well performing that was very different too i mean we had fun we had a great time but it's like you know you probably saw it eight days a week and the, when the beatles it's great
2: went, by the way is, yeah it's terrific They're recommended
1: movie. oh yeah terrific i um, ron howard's a, a a great friend and a brilliant filmmaker and um And, uh, but so, you know. You couldn't hear yourself. You couldn't. They couldn't hear you really. Sure. I mean, it was an experience. But it, music now, it's great. You know, the technology's changed everything.
2: People forget they were singing through the PA system when you, they would the, play arenas. Monitors in didn't those days. exist. Yeah. You know, the,
1: the the word monitor didn't exist. There were jobs that we have now that didn't exist. Front of house makes it didn't exist. Guitar tech didn't exist. I mean, no all that stuff. And monitor makes it. No, no monitors. You were using whatever PA was in the building, including like the, the same thing. They announced the score over was what you. Wait, right, so sang. when they
2: play candlestick? Park. Yeah. That's what they're it's singing. Crazy. Yeah. And
1: then you just had big amps on stage. Nothing was mighty except the vocals. It was crazy. So you couldn't hear yourself. You couldn't hear anything. They couldn't hear you. It was kind of annoying. And and I I loved the studio, you know, completely. So I decided I wanted to. And then got lucky enough to find an artist I believed in. That's when I became a manager as well. And and you said
0: that in, in an interview that how much it's changed being on
1: the road. Completely. Yes. What are the changes? Well, as I say, some of it is the technology. Some of it's the fact that it's it's organized now. It was chaotic then. I mean, everyone was making it up as they went along. I mean, there's there are aspects of it that have maybe become too corporate and too organized on a grand scale, you know, with crazy $300 ticket prices and, you know, um, all that stuff. It's just got very elaborate now. But, um, you know, so there's a certain homemadeness that one misses but there's no question when you go to a show now you expect to be able to hear everything and see everything and get a real production and you do sure. and it's great and it's exciting you know so it's it's changed radically it's
2: stunning to think that
1: this even pop- on our level even when I play clubs you know I still go out and I do a, a memoir show thing with a band right and, and then I've lately been doing a bunch of gigs with Albert Lee a genius guitar player Absolutely. you may know of, and who
2: played uh, with the Everly brothers
1: who played with the Everly brothers my sure. brothers and Emmy Lou Harris for years sure. and all that stuff but even for us it's completely different. I mean, we can hear ourselves. The audience can hear everything perfectly. You know, you can really make a show sound good. Your guitars sound like real guitars. And back then, there was no that none of that existed. And I think the Beatles were getting tired mm-hmm. of that, not completely. being able to hear themselves completely. I mean, Ringo says he, it was only by watching the, their behinds, the, the ba- their whole backs and movement, that he knew what song they were doing. <laughs> right. I mean, right. it was a combination
2: crazy. Of, of of bad tech and, and screaming. Yeah, exact combination of bad
1: tech and screaming fans. Right. I right. mean that scene in Eight Days a Week when Ringo comes out and he's trying to stop the drum oh, riser that's... falling over before he climbs yeah, on it. It's turn, fascinating. It's insane. Yeah. I mean, I remember we had one guy on the road, you know, doing everything, and I was kind of when we toured with the Beatles, I went, well, this will be different. They had two, <laughs> you know, but now a band like the Beatles would have a hundred, you know, of people course. and semis, and you know, it, it, the changes beyond measure.
2: So you went your separate ways. Paul asked you to take a job at Apple. Yes, and you you went into A and R. Yep, and you were scouting talent. He started off saying, "Would you produce
1: some records for Apple?" Because he was aware of my production work and sure. he played on a couple of things that I had produced. So he would watched me at work, and and I said yes. And then he said, well, "Why don't you be head of A&R off the label?" And jumped at it.
2: Yes, and then Mister Taylor and Mr. came Taylor into your life. Came into or life. Danny Korchmar.
1: Yes, Danny Korchmar had been in a. You know, we used to get assigned a band to back us up on different legs of a tour in America. I mean, admittedly, you only had to work up. Twenty minutes of songs, so but the bands varied a great deal in quality, and but Danny was in a good band called the Flight, called um, uh, the Kingbees, and uh, they backed us up on two tours I think, and Danny and I became great friends in that time. Then he was subsequently some years later in the band the Flying Machine with his childhood friend James Taylor. They'd grown up on the vineyard together, and and. Um, So that band was in New York and having a hard time, and a couple of them were strung out and broke, and this, that, and the other. And the band broke up, and James decided he would go to London. He had a girlfriend he thought he could stay with in London. Danny gave him my phone number. Just said, you know, here's a friend of mine in London. If you're going to be there, give him a call. So he called me up out of the blue
2: and came over. And what did you hear? Which which song? Uh,
1: Something in the Way She Moves, Something's Wrong, Knocking Around the Zoo. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not Caroline in my mind. He wrote that a few months later. Uh, That was probably uh, Soak Around the Sun. Not sure what else. But you knew.
2: You knew straight away. I was
1: knocked out. I mean, everything. I mean, he had played the guitar brilliantly, this finger-picking style that obviously owed something to classical playing. He'd been listening to Segovia and Julian Bream and stuff and not just, you know, folkies. Um, Plus, But then he was using these kind of jazzy Manhattan's records kind of chords, but singing with this beautiful folky tenor. And, of course... Ba in that era the term singer songwriter hadn't been invented if you had long hair and played the guitar you were a folk singer didn't it didn't matter if you never sang a folk song <laughs>
2: that's interesting if you if you
1: wrote every song you played you were still a folk singer and and that was the, that was what he was but um i'd never heard anything that good and i you know, on it, we had this strange conversation that really was kind of i said look i've got this new job i'm head of a&r for a new record label would you like a record deal and he said yes i'd love one and and so within two days, i had him in the office, meeting the Beatles and signing up.
2: And they responded too. Mm.
1: They 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 loved it too. I played them something the way she moves in particular, and they all agreed. And what's not to like? What's not to like? And so we signed. He was the first artist signed to Apple. And that that gets us back to another subject we
0: brought up on this show, which is songs that mention other songs in them.
2: Well, I believe, and I'm, i I hope this isn't bad information too, but that something in the way she moves in in some way inspired George.
1: Well, we have to assume
2: so.
0: Yeah. Um,
2: right.
1: yeah, George certainly heard it and liked it. Right. And then wrote a song with oddly similar lyrics. Yeah, um, But James, in response to that, when people say, well, how do you feel, he, he, You know, did George adopt your phrase? The answer is that in that song, there's, James keeps putting in, I feel fine, which he said he'd thought of because oh, the Beatles were. Oh, wow, record. wow. That's you know, great stuff. She's around uh, me uh, now, uh, and
2: I feel fine. When he says, holy host of others standing around me, That's too, he's referring yeah. to the Beatles. Yes. That's cool. Yes. That's been Carolina in my mind. Yes. That's pretty cool, too. Yeah, I he just wrote learned that. that. After, I part-
1: See, he wrote, that's what I mean. He wrote that. It was after he'd met them. We'd signed to Apple. He went away for a week or two of holiday to Ibiza, and that's where he wrote Carolina.
2: It's great. I'll tell, I'll tell you. I've, I've seen interviews and listened to interviews with, with James Taylor mm. <clears> recently. Yeah. He gives you a lot of credit for being, for being the person that, that believed in him. I did.
1: I mean, because I, essentially when, I, when we moved to America, I, you know, neither of us had any money. I was betting my career on, on his. I dropped him off on the East Coast for a bit of rehab. He was in the mood for it at the time. And I then went out to California and made a record deal.
2: And you're looking back at those people, I mean, the, and the people that you assembled, I mean, Danny, uh, Randy Meisner, Carol King, Russ Kunkel.
1: No, hold on. That's, that's not the Apple album.
2: No, no, I mean later oh, on. Oh, the sweet baby James. Yeah, sweet baby yeah, James. Yeah.
1: Well, what they, they, I mean, they were very distinct because the Apple album was just people in London. So you know, Paul played on it, but but other than that, we had to put a little band together of English musicians. Right. I jumped. I split. I, gotcha. I split when you
2: went to L.A. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh,
1: sorry. Sorry, but I thought you said. Yeah, my mistake. But then when we got to L.A., uh, I decided to make the album much simpler, and I wanted to put a band together. By this time, I'd heard the demos Carol King had done of all the great songs she wrote. You know. The demo of you know up on the roof or sure. whatever, and and I loved her piano playing. So when Danny Kortschmann introduced me to Carol, I said, "Would you consider just being the pianist on this project I'm doing?" And she came over to my house where James was staying, and they met and sat down and played together. And Russ Kunkel had never been in the studio before. He'd, wow! I I heard him in a John Stewart rehearsal. John, John Stewart, Stewart used to be in the King's King's Trio. Trio, yeah. Um, and. Uh, i loved the way he played he was the first person i'd heard he clearly hadn't been listening to hal blaine but to ringo you know what i mean a whole other kind of drum fill and so i hired him to do those sessions and but, how did you find linda ronstadt um somebody i was in new york and somebody said you have to go and see this girl i don't remember who it was have to go and see this girl playing at the bitter end she's amazing she's got the greatest voice you ever heard in your life she's she's brilliant and she's unbelievably beautiful and she sings barefoot and she's and you know it was all true and and uh, i went there and met her afterwards and and we didn't actually start working together right away because i just started working with kate taylor james's sister and i thought managing two women might be complicated but but in the end kate Decided to take some time off, and at that point, Linda and I got together, and I started managing her and and producing her. And the first album I I produced with Linda, she'd done a couple of other ones, but I produced them um, hot like a wheel. And and the
0: thing that eventually had her stop performing, Linda Ronstadt.
1: Well, she has Parkinson's, here. Yeah. yeah yeah, yeah how's she doing by the way? she's I mean as well as anyone with a very unpleasant disease of course, can be doing she's of she's fine, you know she she was worries about her brain, you know because she goes, I can feel my brain turning to Swiss cheese but but she's so brilliant, she's one of the most smartest women I've ever met, incredibly well read and Best girl singer clever. you ever heard in your life, I've heard she you say. Is. It's, it's, it's amazing that those two things would apply to the same person, but they do. Yeah. She's, she's. there's um, I mean, no reason they shouldn't, but it's, you know, very fortunate when someone's an amazingly good singer and and is incredibly smart and well-read and fascinating. So I have treasure her as a singer and as a friend. But yes, so Parkinson stopped her singing and, you know, she, she can walk a bit and stuff, but it's it's a... A very annoying disease.
2: We're fans here, yeah. and those albums—she's Pri- the greatest. "Prisoner in Disguise," hard Like a Wheel." I mean, uh, "Simple Dreams," uh, "Living in the USA." They're wonderful records. Thank you very much. And if our listeners—we have about a million people now a month listening to the show—wow! If our listeners do not know these albums, by all means, run out and get them. Absolutely. And she's also the James Taylor. Record. One
1: of the, she's one of the greatest interpreters of songs because she's not a songwriter, you know, and she, but she. She herself. I mean, I didn't know about Warren Zevon until she came to me and said, "We're going to do several songs by right. this brilliant guy." And she was right.
2: Well, all those songs, the McGarrigal sisters. She rescued Elvis Costello. Elvis. She does Allison.
1: Yeah, it's funny. Yeah. And, then, and then Elvis was incredibly rude about it, but she subsequently apologized. Oh, interesting. Oh, why? <laughs> How was he rude about it? Oh, because you know, he had to be. He was a punk, and and so <laughs> you know, so <laughs> he you know he, he did a Rolling Stone interview when he kind of derided Linda's version as you know awful. Meanwhile, of course, it made him more money than he'd ever made in his life so far because it was a big hit. Well, but but he did. I, I love Elvis very much. We, we've become friends, and and he totally acknowledges that he was being a bit of a deliberate
2: punk Well, also this, in,
1: in the musical sense.
2: That's, that's <laughs> funny. I'm glad he apologized. The, we, yeah. The songwriting, I mean, not just Zivon and Elvis Costello, but, I mean, that you guys were picking, you know, Stones covers, Orbison. Buddy yes. Holly. I mean, you went to the best places. We
1: did. I mean, Linda and I were fans of a lot of the same people, and and so we we did that. Yes, it was fun.
2: I love when I grow too old to dream. Which on uh, on living in the USA, I don't know which one of you decided to pick that one, but it's it is that is an absolutely I think that was Linda. I think stunning stunning I'm not sure.
1: Generally, I, I'm the one usually picking some of the rock and roll ones because Linda would make an all slow album give, given the choice. She likes singing slow songs, and of course, when we did the Nelson Riddle albums which was completely her idea, not mine. I I it, it supported her in it, but I didn't think they would be successful. And, of course, they, they did unbelievably
2: well. They're great records. The
1: first one sold three or four million, more than her preceding rock and roll albums. And and working with Nelson was a, a thrill. I'll lend her a huge debt of gratitude for that.
2: My hats off! Those records are wonderful, and, and,
1: and Elvis Costello. Since then, of course, has become a hero of mine. He's one of the
2: best songwriters in America. He's a, and our he's friend brilliant. Jimmy Webb turns up twice, and Jimmy <laughs> Webb on, on Get Closer.
1: Yes, he does. And then we did that Cry Like a Rainstorm, Howl Like a Wind album. We that's did, right. What, three Jimmy Webb tunes. I think Adios and Gosh.
2: I can't. I can't I, think. I know I, the Moon is I, the harsh mis- Mistress. Moon is Harsh Mistress. That, yeah. That's a great song. Yeah.
1: No, Jimmy's amazing. There's nobody like. And how
0: did you get involved with uh, Robin Williams and Steve Martin?
1: uh quite differently, uh Robin, I think I met through my wife who was knew Robin uh my wife Wendy knew Robin before I did, and uh so we met and hit it off and became great friends, and we would hang out together a lot and and when he was talking about filming and recording the tour um I had some ideas about how we you know we could make a record that would be a different thing than than what the the DVD of one show, you know the DVD was the HBO show essentially. But for the album we recorded every show and took all the best bits and and he also would do different bits every night about the city he was in. So we had a separate CD with all those put together. So um I you know I, I was explaining to him what I thought he could do and he said, you know, why don't you produce it and come with us on the road and I said Yes, please. My, Robin and his, and his wife Marsha, um, who who helped very much put that together.
2: How did, how does one produce a comedy album?
1: Well, in this case, it was it really was a question of note taking primarily, uh-huh. Re- making remembering where all the best bits were. You so guys won a Grammy. You won Grammys. We did. We won a Grammy. Yeah, uh, we won best comedy album, not one I counted on winning. And uh, <laughs> congratulations. And then Steve Martin was different because um, Steve also is a, is a friend, and I was having dinner with him here in New York, and. He was telling me about this stuff that he was working out with edie Brickell. he'd written some banjo melodies he'd given them to her she'd written these amazing songs kind of on top of them not we thought he thought that she was just going to put lyrics to the banjo melody instead of which she wrote a whole counter melody we're brilliant and i heard those over dinner at steve's house and again we were talking about i said you know these are really good you should make an album and here's how i think you could do it so it wasn't strictly a bluegrass album but make it a little more adventurous than that put some other instruments in it and real strings and not just a fiddle and and so on so and the same thing kind of happened i was actually on the plane home the next day that steve emailed me on the plane and said do you want to produce the record um and i said yes so basically i'm always out hustling for work you're the busiest
2: person but, we've ever had on this show i was looking so at that, your website i did those two
1: steven Eddy albums and then of mm-hmm. course they turned that into a broadway show um, Bride Star, which is right, it's a musical right. show, which ran on Broadway for a while, not long enough to officially be a hit, but we did a hundred and some shows. So it was, and it's opening in L.A. Uh, this fall at the Amundsen. And I, so I was music supervisor for the show, and then I produced the cast album, which we were nominated for Tonys and Grammys and all that stuff, um, which was exciting. So you have your funny. hands in everything. You're I do. Also, I, I work with Hans Zimmer a lot. Too. Yeah, do you're doing movie music. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, I, I like to keep busy. I'm not going to take up golf and move to Florida or anything. In the
2: <laughs> <laughs> couple, of, just a couple of last questions, Peter. We sure. know you. We know you got to go, and you've been you've been such a, a sport. Oh, it's a pleasure and full and just filled with information. I, I in addition to recommending those those Ronstadt albums, uh, I'm going to tell our listeners too to get those James Taylor albums. For God's sake, I mean they're wonderful. Gorilla J T in the pocket, Walking Man, they're all wonderful. And everybody, you get to hear everybody on there. I mean, Paul and Linda McCartney show up. Art Garfunkel's on there.
1: Yep. David Crosby, Graham
2: Nash, everybody.
1: Yep. It's true. It's true. It's true. And I will also. Pl- I will plug my shows with Albert if I may. Please we're, do. We're doing a bunch Albert of shows uh, with Albert Lee here on the west, on the east coast, um, starting with the Cutting Room this Sunday. But, but um, uh, yeah, do come if you can.
2: And celebrity be, biography.
1: And I'm doing the celebrity biography, thing, which is
2: which, which is, is a great is show.
1: Keeping my acting career going. Um, <laughs> Uh, because that's you know I've actually my degree does does every now and then pop up again. I did a, um, a film. I had a small role in a film called Doris and Bernard. I don't know if anybody saw it. it was no, a, who's it, in it was that? It's an HBO movie. Okay, um, my friend Bob Balaban. Oh um, yes. who I'm actually having dinner with tonight. Oh, um, directed it, and, um, and there I am again hustling for work. and, yeah. uh, <laughs> and we're big fans and of his. It They did this great movie about Dor- Doris Duke. You know, um, Susan Sarandon played Doris Duke, and Ray Fiennes played the butler, who has this peculiar, confusing relationship with her throughout the whole movie. In order for Ray Fiennes to get the job, the old butler has to get fired. So I was the old butler, and pages one, two, and three give serving Susan Sarandon her her watermelon at the wrong temperature for breakfast, then getting fired.
2: Yeah, I was just I was. <laughs> so without me, without me, Ray Fiennes couldn't have got anywhere. So. Ah, and you ah, are in the ah. Ruttles movie, I'd also like to point out. I'm in
1: out. the second Ruttles movie, The yes, yes, second yes, one. Yes, yeah, yeah.
2: yes. Eric Idle's a dear friend yeah. and a genius. And the great Neil Innes. Yeah. Yes, yeah. and Neil Innes, absolutely. So we, we have to ask you this real quick. Yeah. uh Gil, you have anything else? Uh, no. We, we let this man get on with his life, yeah. and maybe he'll take us out. He'll be kind enough to take us out with a song. First of all, Faust, the Randy Newman project, is another masterpiece. Oh, so thank you. So you have my admiration. My, uh, thank you, that was fun my to admiration. do. That
1: was fun to do. We had At, James Taylor... Um, Oh, Elton, that, Elton's on there. Don,
2: Don Henley, Elton John, yeah. Linda that Bonnie Raitt. Everybody, get Incredible. that one, too. Yeah, that's a good yeah. one. So, and just the last thing, this is, that's the 50th anniversary of Sgt. Pepper, so we'd be remiss in not just asking you about it. I mean, even if it's just... What well, was re-
1: I, I remember visiting the studio a couple of times, so I'd heard little bits, but not much. I mean, I wasn't in the studio hardly at all. I mean, people... I think if everyone who says they were at a Beatles session was actually there, it would have been as big as the Albert Hall. But the, <laughs> the, um, uh, but what I did do was hear the whole thing when it was finished. I remember distinctly when Paul brought home a, a, a metal lacquer, you know, they just assembled it all and put it together for the first time and played it. It was just in our dining room at home on an ordinary old record player, you know, the guy with a lid, and... Um, and uh, it sounded amazing, just the the mono lacquer straight from the studio. And I was blown away. And they, I realized that albums were never going to be the same
2: Never going to be
0: the they same. They were talking about that, uh, I think on PBS recently, <clears throat> the making of Sgt. Pepper. There was a great
2: special on PBS. Yes. Wonderful, yep. with yep. a musicologist. Yes. Who yep. really takes you through the... I
1: how impossible
2: I've been it working. was to
1: do that then. Yeah, because it was all four-track. I mean, the technology was fascinating. I could go on about that for hours, too. But, yeah, no, that's issue. I've been working with Apple records into you know, that Apple quite a bit lately. Indeed, I also have a radio show now. Course, tell us so about that. I have a radio show every every Thursday night at 8 p.m. on the Sirius XM on the new Beatles channel. They gave me a, a, asked me if I could do an hour show once a week and I get to play pretty much whatever I want because it's supposed to be Beatle related. Right, of but course. But once you include everything that influenced the Beatles and everyone they influenced, that's <laughs> everybody. <laughs> that's a, that's a wide net. <laughs> that's everybody. Right. So, yeah. so, yeah. Right. so I, tell, I try to like this, tell a story, a thread that goes through it all and... Uh, and and you know include some 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 cool music that people might not have heard. And I heard that Thursday nights at eight. Thursday Eastern. nights at
2: eight. On what? Eastern. Where they? Where can they get that?
1: Sirius XM. Sirius XM on the Beatles channel.
2: Okay, that's great. Now I'm going to listen to that for yeah. sure. Go ahead. Gil. No, What's I you so
0: just heard that the Beatles they had like sort of a rivalry,
1: creative rivalry with the Beach Boys. Yes, they did. I mean, they both. I think they both realized. I can't remember what the order is anymore. But was it Sergeant Pepper
2: Pet, then Pet Sounds? Then Pet Sounds or the other remember. No, way I around. think
0: Pet Sounds came out when the Beatles
2: heard I think that. Pet Sounds is first, but yeah, no maybe problem. so. So
1: yeah, you know, they, what, what one way or the other, you know, Pet Sounds maybe inspired Sergeant Pepper, and then these boys, you know. But I think it was definitely a case of somebody doing something brilliant, and their big rivals going, "Oh shit, you know, how, how are we going to beat that?" And so it, you know, and it was an amiable musical competition.
2: Absolutely. Uh,
1: and just you know, everyone trying to be better than everybody else, which is what show business yeah. is all about. Yeah, because
2: I
0: think McCartney had heard pitch sounds. You could and be right. He couldn't believe it.
1: Yeah, I I don't remember that specifically as, a, as an experience of mine, but certainly I know that would took place, and we've all read about
2: it. And the last thing I want to ask you, and we'll get to the we'll, we'll throw the plugs in again at the end. But did, and you've been asked this before. Did you did you know that this music was going to have the permanence that it's had the the lasting effect that it's had? Was there any way to know?
1: No, I don't think. I didn't really think about it. I mean, as I say, the perception at the time was being a pop star is it, is, is the, an extremely short, ephemeral career. Because mm-hmm. um, nobody took the music seriously. The record company certainly didn't. I mean, EMI looked down their noses at it. You know, they took their classical music seriously sure. and their, their radar business seriously more than pop music. But, um, no, and that's why, you know, when that, the Times of London music critic wrote that... It, You know, life changing review of the Beatles, where he took the music seriously and reviewed it as music and said it was brilliant, and that was kind of the beginning of a total change of attitude. And now, classical musicians, jazz musicians, and rock and roll musicians are are all thought of in their respective fields as equals. And but before that, you know, the jazz guys and the classical guys looked down their noses at everything pop. As if they, as if oh, I could do that if I wanted to, but of course they couldn't. Right, you know. Right, right. They're they're, each of them a very particular arts, and now pop music's given the respect it's due. It's
2: great. We know you got to fly. Do you have time to do one more with him? I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: Seventeen,
0: a beauty queen. queen. queen, She made a ride that caused a (laughs) scene. Her down around her knees all the, the cats with did triptease praying for <laughs> a little breeze her long, long blonde hair, hair. Falling, falling down, down her, on her arms her hiding all the ladies show. charms hey 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 what? take it
1: away there you go
0: Lady Godiva <laughs> She's she found fame, fame. And, and made, made her, her name, name a Hollywood director came into and town, came into town and huh. said to her, how'd you like, like to be a star? You're, You're a girl, girl who could go, go far, especially, especially the dressed way you, the way you are. <laughs> she smiled at him gave, him, gave a pretty head a shake, that, that was Lady G's mistake.
1: Hey hey, hey, hey,
0: take it away. Lady Godiva. <laughs> he, he directs, directs certificates. And, and people, people now are craning the next they see her. Because she's a star. One
3: that everybody knows. Finished with, with the striptease
0: shows. shows. Now, now she, she can't, can't afford her clothes. Her clothes.
2: Die now! <laughs> uh, terrific.
3: Very good, Peter. Thank you. Oh, never, never so sounded bad. Thank you. <laughs> Give us the plugs again. If you
1: look on PeterAsherMusic.com, there's a whole itinerary We'll send people... Come to a show if you can. Because the nice thing about playing small places, I get to say hello to everyone afterwards and hang out and stuff. So do come and say hi.
2: Well, I'll tell you what. We're going to put up two of the video that our friends have just been taking here. And we'll put it up on social media tonight just to get... Absolutely. That should be deeply embarrassing. Yes.
0: (laughs) 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 So, I'm Gilbert Gottfried. This has been Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast... With my co host, Frank Santopadre, and we've been here talking to uh, my fellow
2: Menza, <laughs> graduate, Peter Asher. I doubt that. <laughs> Peter, this was a treat. Thank, thank you very much. You are someone we could talk to for seven hours. Oh, yes,
1: I, I, I warned you. I can go on forever.
2: Thank you for doing this. <laughs> thank you very much. Okay, it's pal.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. Bye.
3: Tell my arms <laughs> inside